Welcome to the Integrate Schools podcast. I'm Andrew, a white dad from Denver, and this is Reopening Schools and Equity. So we come hurtling into the start of the school year, how and if we reopen school buildings is on everyone's mind. This moment of crisis, combined with a lack of leadership and clear guidance, has left everyone struggling to figure out what the school year might look like. And unsurprisingly, equity often gets left behind. From childcare collectives to private micro schools, the range of options that parents are considering is vast, but how to approach these issues with an eye towards equity is hard to get a handle on. There has been a lot of great writing about this topic, and there are links to much of it in the show notes, but I came across a series of posts on Medium that really seem to get at the equity question in a unique and I found helpful way. They're written by Dr. Shayla Reese Griffin. She's the co-founder of Justice Leaders Collaborative, an author, educator, and mother, and to my great joy, agreed to come on the show. So let's hear the conversation. Hello, I'm Shayla Reese Griffin. I am the co-founder of Justice Leaders Collaborative, which is an organization that provides social justice education, training, consulting, and coaching for individuals, organizations, and schools, which has been our primary focus. I've written a couple books. I'm the author of Those Kids Are Schools, Race and Reform in an American High School that came out in 2015. And I'm co-author of the book Race Dialogues, A Facilitator's Guide to Tackling the Elephant in the Classroom, which came out in 2019. I am the mother of three. I currently have a two-year-old, a three-year-old, and a five-year-old who is in school. Your five-year-old is finished kindergarten, is going to start kindergarten? So my five-year-old should be going into kindergarten this year, but is instead going to learn from the world. No, he, he should be a kindergartner this coming year. He also is deaf. And so the way special education works here, he's been in the public school system since he was two and a half because there's access to that for kids with disabilities. And so even though this for a lot of parents would be like the first year a kid would be entering school, I've been in the public school system with my child already for I guess this would be the third year. And then my other two would have been starting preschool this year was what I was hoping and planning for. But that is not happening, obviously. So, yeah, this is going to be a big year for a lot of people. Yeah. Yeah. So speaking about the fall schools, I mean, I think, you know, some districts are starting up. My district's supposed to start in three weeks, but we're on the cusp here. You've written a couple of pieces about the fall. Your most recent one is basically saying we're not going to school. (laughs) (laughs) Whether you think you are or not, even if you're going to school, you're certainly not going all the time, given the public health crisis. And so what is your thinking about what the fall looks like and what should we do about it? Well, I think it's a disaster. Um, of epic proportions, I think I wrote. And I think that it is unfortunate and enraging that this conversation is at the point it is on July 30th. I mean, it was clear to me in March that the fall was probably not going to happen. And so the fact that as a country, we just didn't have the confidence or the capacity to wrap our heads around that months ago and come up with an actual viable plan rooted in the reality of coronavirus it baffles me. I cannot wrap my head around why that was or why that is. And I get at a federal level, there is not, we just, there's no will or interest there. But even at a local level, you know, superintendents and principals in March, April, May, June, early July, were just like, I'm pretty sure it's going to be fine by the time school starts. And I just don't understand what 
we were looking at that made us think that. So mostly I feel very sad and upset that we weren't able to wrap our heads around this in a better way. Hold on just a second. No worries. Yes, baby. Can you do it by yourself? Mom's on a call. You can get your own yogurt out of the refrigerator. Do it all by yourself. Go ahead. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> of course. Yep. He's like, are you doing something? Oh, let <laughs> you me must be busy. Me. Let me come yeah. up and bother you. Just like every other parent. And so we're here now. So what do I think? I think that most places are not going to be safe enough to open. Dr. Fauci just spoke to the American Federation of Teachers, their national convention. And the things that he said, I just don't see any way that the majority of places in our country are safe enough. And one of the things he said that I've been advocating for, but I was very happy to hear him say is we, you have to do regular testing. That right. the level of asymptomatic infection or pre-symptomatic infection is so high that even if you're doing these things that schools are talking about, like taking kids' temperatures, that only reveals kids who have temperatures, right? And so right. I think that, you know, in an ideal world, rates would be low enough in a community that we could figure out how to safely open some schools for some kids. And my argument is that that should be the most marginalized students, right. but that that will require regular testing, mandatory mask usage, mandatory social distancing. And from what I see in just the schools I work at, there just doesn't seem to be any capacity to implement those things. <laughs> yeah. And, and the, I mean, like regular testing is great, but if you, if it takes three weeks to get the results back, it's meaningless. Oh, it has right? to be regular and rapid <laughs> yeah. results. I mean, right. so the thing that's interesting is we do, th we're doing this for the NBA right now. The <laughs> right. NBA, they are testing every single player, every coach, every media person, Every Mascot. single day, the president gets tested. My understanding is anyone around him gets tested every single day. So, so it's not that we don't have the science or technology to do it. We don't have the political will and the monetary investment to do it. And right. so this is where, for me, it does feel like in, in most places, this is probably just not an option. Right. We can do it. We can do it for the NFL. We can do it for the NBA. We can do it for the baseball, but not for our teachers or our kids or our schools. Yeah. I mean, that's what you're basically saying. Right. Not you. I mean, that's what we're basically saying. And so I guess what I ultimately think should happen is to the extent that we can get testing and all those other safety measures in place to open some places for some kids in places where that makes sense. I would like to see that happen. I think that's not the majority of places. And so I think realistically, parents are going to be home with their children. I, yeah. I don't I don't know where else kids are supposed to go. Like what? Right. Right. So to me, the only safe option that it deals with the fact that most schools are not going to open face-to-face -face instruction and schools that open face-to-face -face instruction, I think, are going to be very likely to close down before the school year's over yeah. is we have to figure out how the people you already live in a house together, parents, families, grandparents, whoever, you know, young people are with and live with, guardians, are able to stay home with them. And, and you cannot do two jobs at once. You can't raise kids full-time and work full-time, if that were possible to do, we all would have been doing it. Right. If it were possible to do that, I would never take my kid to school because the headache of trying to figure out like drop-off and pick-up and the times that don't align with my work, if he could just stay home and I could equally do my job, I would have been doing that, right? right? We weren't doing it because it's not possible to do. And so if we know for a fact it is not possible to raise children 24 hours a day, seven days a week and work a job, and we know we are going to have no other choice but to do that because there are very few schools that are going to open and stay open. We have to allow the people taking care of children to have something to live on. And so that mandates that we have to figure out how to how to pay parents to stay home. And they're not just staying home for themselves. I mean, they're staying home for all of us because our goal is to not spread coronavirus. Right. I don't think there's any other choice. I'm, I'm not saying it's going to happen. 
But I think if it doesn't happen, the kind of crisis we are facing, if people couldn't wrap their heads around the fact in, you know, May and June that school probably wasn't going to open in the fall in most places, I I surely think we're going to struggle to wrap our heads around the level of crisis we are going to face if we don't figure out how to how to get parents some money so they can stay home with their kids. I just think it's going to be unprecedented and, you know, specifically relevant to the work that you do and and, and this podcast. It is going to affect the most marginalized kids the most. Right. And so the mental health crisis, the homelessness crisis, the hunger crisis, the academic crisis, I just I think it's going to be astronomical if we don't do this. And so I feel like one of one of the challenges of building the political will to do something about it is that we can't even imagine what that looks like. Right. Like there's not even a vision of like, what does it mean to like, are we really going to have 60, 70, 80 million newly homeless families? Who got yes. evicted? Like are, we like, will if we, we don't do something, <laughs> right? Right. Like yeah. we don't even have like you no. Know, you can't even like like look at oh remember that time when you know a quarter of the population didn't have a place to live. I think what's really clear about this moment to me, and I'm not a psychologist, so like I hesitate to go too deeply down this path. But I think that we live in a country where a lot of people, especially middle class and privileged parents, cannot conceive of having a government and systems that do not ultimately work to provide for their basic needs. Like Mm. they just can't conceive of it. And so Mm -hmm. there's this level of denial where we just, we don't believe it could happen. Something's got to happen, right? Somebody's got to figure something out. Somebody must be coming to save us to Yeah, somebody's going to fix this. They're not going to let this happen. There's no way in in America we would let this happen. Even though it's happening, and it has been happening for tons of families since the founding of the the nation, right? right? Before the people for whom homelessness and hunger have not been concerns, I think they cannot, wrap their heads around the possibilities. And so that's part of our struggle to really, to, to, I think, take action is that in some ways, I think we are, we're not angry enough and motivated enough because we're not determined enough because we don't think we have to be. We just think something's got to give. Yeah. Something's got to give. And let me just tell you, I mean, one of the most disturbing things about the three essays I've written now about schooling and COVID is that I'm interested that they've kind of blown up the way they have. Because to me, what I said in those essays, everyone should be saying. Right. You didn't feel like particularly insightful when you wrote, you're like, look well, at, no, like, look at the state I of the did. world. This is right. Yeah. And I'm not saying I was. I mean, I'm sure other people thought of the ideas that are there. And I'm, I'm not saying I'm the only person that came up with this. But the fact that there isn't more just in that is available to people to think about action and activism and justice in these ways. Like, that's scary to me. Yeah. Like, there's just a dearth of public innovative thinking and proposals happening around this. And that's the part that I think is really the scariest because we should be being inundated with really rich and new innovative ideas. And then it should just be a matter of like, how do we advocate for them? Yeah. Pick the best ones, try a few of them here and there. Yeah. But we're not even at that point. Yeah. I think so many of the things that COVID has, has laid bare that were there all along. Like you said, people living in poverty and homelessness are not surprised at the possibility of poverty or homelessness, like view that as a very real thing. And, and COVID has brought so many of these things to the, to the forefront. One of the things that's really, that I've struggled with is, is just recognizing the lack of levers of power that people feel like they have access to, to advocate for change. So, yeah, I mean, I think there's just a real crisis in our democracy. And I guess I kind of knew that intellectually, but this has just really, really revealed it Mm. because even people who are relatively privileged people, who are relatively thoughtful people, 
who were like engaging with these ideas on Facebook and on Twitter are just kind of at a loss of what they would do. Yeah. I mean, they just have no idea. And so when I say, hey, we need to be lobbying and advocating for A, B, C, or D, they're just like, what? How do we do that? Who would we talk to? And I'm just like, y'all, call yeah. your Congress people. Like talking on Facebook with some person you've never met who has no power to do anything about this whatsoever and clearly no interest in actually engaging in good faith dialogue about what we should do is not action and doesn't matter at all. Gets us no closer to actually solving it, it the crisis. It doesn't do anything, in, right? but I think people can figure out how to like get into a social media debate and they just don't have any idea of what it would actually be to try to get their Congress people or their districts or their school boards to think differently in these ways. And I think that's a very scary thing because we have no idea what the sites of change and the levers of power really are kind of as a collective. And I think we maybe fool ourselves into thinking we're doing more than we are because, I mean, I don't, you know, I post on social media. I'm not saying that like people shouldn't do that, but this idea that arguing with this one person on social media is, is going to, what do we think that's going to do? So I think we have these goals about what a just society would look like. And we struggle very much to do the action part, which is what all of integrated schools is about, right? Like, yeah, that's the, the thing. It's the, the, I think a lot about the kind of middle ground. Like it's easy to look at the you know federal government and say like, okay, this is hopeless. The odds of something changing in the next, two weeks feels really slim and it's easy to get frustrated with that and throw up your hands. But then I don't know, I would wish that then the next step would be like, all right, screw the feds. Let's talk to the state. Yeah. Let's talk to the city. Yeah. Let's talk to the boys and girls club and the YMCA. Let's talk to the people who, you know, have some expertise here and, and elevate that. And instead what we've done is said, okay, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to talk to my rich white friends yeah. and we're going to, and we're going to hire a teacher and we're going to fix this for ourselves, fix it just for ourselves. Which I get. I mean, I don't even have really criticism of why people are inclined to do that. You got to figure out what to do with your kids. And if there's no other system that's going to do it, parents are going to do it. I mean, I don't know. You know, they're not going to leave their six-year-old home alone. Right. And it just is such a missed opportunity for larger systems change. You know, you said the state level and the local level and the YMCA. I mean, what about your school board even? Yeah. I mean, people aren't even talking to their principals. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> Or their superintendents. The levels between the individual family and the president of the United States are so vast. And I think there is a real struggle about what activism and justice and, and, and building power look like at the more local level. Yeah. So I'm a pessimist. Have you? <laughs> I, I don't know if you know that. It's, it's depressing. Just, okay. <laughs> yeah. It's hard to be optimistic right now. But let's talk a little bit about pods. We've sort of mentioned them. Pods. pods is like all anybody can talk about right now. All and middle class people can talk about right all now. All middle class, mostly white people for sure can talk mm -hmm. about right now. And like you said, there's a, a reasonable impetus to try to solve the problem for yourself if you feel like there's nobody else who's going to solve it for you. I, I just want to say it's so funny, this pods conversation, because so my child goes to a school district that's majority black, majority low income. No one is talking about this. Mm. Like, this is not a conversation. And so I didn't really know this pause thing was happening. I wrote the first Medium article maybe two weeks ago now about what I think schools should be doing. And then people started reaching out to me and saying, well, what do you think about pods? And I literally had no idea what they were talking about. Right. I had to Google it. I was like, <laughs> pods during coronavirus. <laughs> right. And so I just want to say my experience or my thoughts about this are really not from a very personal perspective because I am not... 
I am in a community that's talking about this in terms of my class position, but in terms of my child's actual classmates, this is not a conversation that is happening. So a couple of things, I think like it's good to define what a pod is and because it feels like there's a pretty wide range of things when people talk about pods that they're talking about. So you've got the, I think there's a New York Times article today about the $150,000 pods that you can buy from a private school, go in on with your friends, withdraw from public schools and have a teacher and meet in your basement and whatever. And then there's, the, I think you, you refer to it as a child care collective that has been going on in many communities for a long time. Like, how do we share the burden. Somebody needs to be home with the kids. Uh, me being home with my two kids is is maybe like a little bit of a waste of some capacity that I have. I could have four or five kids here and still do it. Is there a way we can sort of share that? Do those feel like different in your mind, the kind of two extremes? Oh, they're totally different. I mean, you have to take care of your children. So the idea that you're going to figure out childcare if there is no schooling is something that any person with a child has to do. Right. And so figuring out how to get with some group of people, be it friends or family or maybe somebody in your neighborhood or whomever to figure out how children are going to be supervised. I think there's no choice but to do that unless my other proposal happens, which is that unless we really can pay most parents to stay home, kids have to be somewhere. But that's a very different thing to me than basically creating many private schools at your house for you and your closest upper middle class friends or your new upper middle class friends that you met on the internet. And the difference to me is one of justice. And I think that, you know, I am someone, and I think most of the listeners to this podcast are people who believe that one of the biggest ways we create a more just society is through robust public school systems in which we really value teachers and value all students. And and there's lots of ways our public school systems are failing. That's the work I do. I know that they are not ideal in lots of ways, especially for kids of color, especially for low-income kids. And I would not want to do anything in my own decision-making that undermines that as a system. And so the concern about people kind of buying their own teacher or grouping with people like them to, to kind of do education is that, well, t- there's a few concerns. One is that it, it t- undermines the education, the public education system. I might argue that the people really thinking about doing that maybe aren't that committed to there being a public education system. I don't know, or haven't thought about it quite in that way. Right. And so that's one big concern. The other thing it does is hoard resources and hoard opportunity for the kids who honestly do not need it. Right. Right. And so everything we know about the way academic achievement works is that the kind of class position and education level of your parents matters a lot. My oldest child's supposed to be in kindergarten this coming year. If I don't do anything but let him watch TV from now until the year he's going to start first grade, he will be fine. Right. Because he wants for nothing. I mean, I'm not saying I'm indulgent, but he's of a class position where he is not worrying about his basic needs and he has two parents who have PhDs. Right. And there's just, the research just supports it. And so, when parents who are already in privileged positions, who already have kids who are likely to be academically, let me just specify, I mean, academically fine by the ways that we measure that, which are already racist and classist and biased. Problematic in themselves, right? Yeah. Then spend the next year doing private lessons with the teacher they paid $150,000 for. I mean, I might say it's immoral, right? And yeah. so I do think those are different things. And I think the word pod is being used to kind of talk about both of those and everything in between. And that's probably not super helpful because there are some distinctions there that I think are important. Yeah, I think about long-term impact. We're trying to solve this really immediate crisis. How do we think about solving that in a way that 
at least takes into consideration the long-term impacts of, yeah. of how we solve that. Because certainly anybody like pulling their kids out of public schools, that is definitely has a detrimental effect on public schools in general. We're taking away resources. Oh, we're yeah. taking away I mean, seats, if all the, yeah, if all the privileged parents just kind of opt their kids out of public school, that's just money down the, I mean, that public school system is not going to exist on the back end of this in the ways it could. And so I think worst case scenario is the decimation of public school, which is what right. Betsy DeVos et al. want. I mean, very right. openly want. And maybe the second possible scenario, if this kind of happens at the scale, is there are public schools and all of them are for poor Black, uh, Latinx, and Indigenous kids. And I mean, already our schools are so segregated by race and class, we're not far from that. I mean, let's be honest. Right. But that you basically say, you know, there's a Detroit public school, there's an Indianapolis public school, there's a New York public school system, and then any kid who's capable of being anywhere else, meaning private schools, home schools, um, other kinds of schools, is. I mean, that's the real risk, right? Because right. parents decided in 2020... <laughs> They were opting out. So, I mean, I just want to say how school funding works, public school funding works, is different by state. And so this is kind of a global conversation that probably has some variations by state. Where I live, public school funding is on a per-pupil basis. The one thing parents might do first is try to figure that out. Like, how does your funding system work in your actual school district? And how does it matter if your child is or is not enrolled here and really have a really strong sense of that? So for me, that means even if I don't do anything, even if he's absent, most of the year. Even if I'm like, my family cannot do this. We are not going to have this kid doing, right? He's going to be enrolled. He's going to be enrolled and he's going to be there on count day. Yep. Even if I don't ever see that teacher again. And I'm, I'm not necessarily, I'm not advocating that people do that. I'm also not advocating that they don't do that. But <laughs> right. just being really clear about like, what's the systems level, level, level response. And so I have a young child. Online education is really not that good for young children. I last year said, okay, here's the pieces I'm willing to do of what the school is offering. And it was significantly less than what they were offering because it just didn't make sense for my life, my family, my child. Mm -hmm. But he was counted on that roster so that that district could receive the the appropriate funding. And so that when we return to in-person, you know, that's there. That's the systems thinking is not, am I doing this or not doing it? Am I opting out or opting in? But like, what are the ways I can utilize my power to ensure that this, this institution continues to exist? Yeah. How can I how can I minimize the harm that yeah. that at least I am responsible for to the system? Yeah. I think about the the return to school. One, one can one can assume that the majority of people who are likely to pull their kids out of public schools are white and wealthy families. The public schools that all suffered from white flight in the in the wake of desegregation orders mm-hmm. that there was there was a big funding gap. Where does that leave us? a year from now in terms of trying to regain the enrollment that in so many places means the money to actually run a school. Yeah. I think that if parents opt out of public schooling this year, I don't think we should assume they're just going to come back in 2021, 2022 or whatever the year is, Mm -hmm. especially if the year went okay. Right. Right. Like it was like, Oh, I kind of like that teacher I hired. And like, actually once we both get back to work, we could probably afford to keep paying them. And I mean, and so I think that the real risk to public education is huge. And I think that, it puts districts, specifically districts that have lower income populations in a real dilemma because of the way funding works. You know, my one hope about this is because at the same time as it's been, there's a pandemic, there's also a national racial justice movement happening, mm-hmm. is that maybe that has a kind of curbing effect on what white and privileged parents might have more naturally done because they're being forced to think about racial justice in a new way because, you know, people are marching in the streets. So I think there is some hope that these two things happening simultaneously actually limit some of that damage. But 
but yeah, I mean, I think that is the challenge. And I think for some parents, you know, this is one thing I've, I, I saw, you know, getting really clear about why is it that integration matters. And I know you all do a lot of work on this. It's not that black kids need to be sitting next to white kids. Right. It is that with white kids and middle class and upper middle class kids comes a whole host of other resources that students in low income black and brown schools do not have access to if those families aren't there. And so I think that's the other thing to be really clear about when we talked about those systems level solutions about making sure your kids enrolled, regardless of what you do at your house, is I don't need these privileged parents to be enrolled at my kid's school because like my child needs to be exposed to more white people. It's because I need the money and the resources that that group of people brings, right? There's this documentary it's really good. It's called Race, the Power of an Illusion. And one of the episodes is called The House We Live In, which is about redlining. And and one of the speakers on there says the issue with white flight is that when white people leave, they take all the resources with them. Right. They take all the jobs with them. They take all the money with them. And so that's really the dilemma we're talking about, which is like, what are the resources being taken from schools if in mass because of a pandemic, privileged families opt out of the system? And then like, who's who's left to advocate for higher funding for, you know, if all the people who, not because they have better ideas. Whose voices are listened to. Right. But, but who get listened to because of, you know, racist structures of our society in the first place, if they can buy their way out of the problem all the way down from like the discipline issues within a school to this kind of pandemic thing that, that when those of us who are able to opt out of the negative effects of systems, then there's nothing to push those systems to change. 100%. I mean, that's just 100% true. And I say that as, you know, my, my child has not been in school a super long time, my oldest child. And I won't say I've been on like the cutting edge of parent organizing, but I will say we are one of, if not the wealthiest, most privileged family in that building. Mm. And I know I can say things in a way that is heard differently. And if there were two or three other families in there like us, what would be possible might be different. Right. And that's unfortunate. I mean, that's about bias. And, you know, I mean, that's not about us having better things to say, but about how power gets wielded and who gets listened to and why. And so for sure. Yeah. I mean, the real risk is exactly what you said, which is who are the voices that are then heard if all of those people are no longer there. Yeah. I, I loved in your, your second essay, you talked about where, where do we look for solutions and looking to people who have been living in poverty there's expertise there, right, about like, how do we solve this problem of trying to work and care for kids at the same time is not a unique problem to people who have been living in poverty. Totally. Like, this is new for upper middle class people. But people who are working class, who are lower income, who are living in poverty, have always had to figure out how to work their shift and who's watching their kids, right? right. And I think there's lots of variations in the answers to those questions. I don't think everything that is an answer to that question that those communities have come up with is something that uh, middle and upper middle class families can really do. Like, a lot of it is about social networks and do you have people in your family and community who can watch your kids and the way globalization works is that a lot of upper middle class folks, like I don't live close to my parents, right? I can't have them come over and watch my children. Right. I would say even if I did in this moment, there's like medical risk to them. And so that's not necessarily an option. And so I wonder how much, I don't know, but I wonder how much there's some class divide and just the networks that we can tap into for support. I, I don't know any working class folks who are like looking on Facebook for somebody to leave their kids with. Right. I mean, I don't think right. that's happening. I mean, maybe I'm wrong. Y'all can write in and tell me, but yeah. that's like a very middle class phenomenon that you're going to like meet somebody you met on the internet and then take your kid to their house and leave them there. 
what? Yeah, I'm really, right. <laughs> when you say it that way, right, it sounds what like absolutely insane. Yeah. I mean, so, yeah. so I'm not seeing that happening. And, and yet kids are somewhere. Right. They're making it to adulthood. So I think the fact that we haven't tried to tap into those communities and say like, what, how are y'all doing this? How have you been doing this? What are the options here that we maybe haven't considered or the, the ways that we haven't really conceptualized this? I think it just shows you just the real class divide in our country. We're not asking those questions because we actually don't have relationships with those folks. We don't actually know them to ask them. Right. And we certainly don't know them in a way that would acknowledge their expertise or view them as actually having expertise in something that we do not, which is this sort of problem that we are now all facing. And then now that we see the problem they've been facing, what do we owe them? Mm, Right. I mean, there's that question of like, I mean, this is where the system stuff becomes the issue and not just like, how do you fix it for your kid? Is that, Now that we see what a lot of families were already facing, oh my goodness, what is our responsibility as more privileged people to do what we can to fix the system, not just for us, but for them. I mean, for all of us, right? Right. And I think that's the part where for me, it just feels like if my only answer is a pandemic pot where I hire a teacher for my kid, like that is not sufficient as an answer for people who have privilege, have the privilege to do more. Yeah. Let's talk about those kids, our schools. Oh, those kids. So you spent a number of years in a high school, an unidentified high school that you called Jefferson in an unidentified city. (laughs) What were you sort of hoping to learn from spending all that time there? You know, I've always been interested in and done research and work around race and social justice issues in in school and in K-12 education. And that's been inspired a lot by my own K-12 experience. I was a black kid in suburban majority white schools. I would say they were not all white. The, the high school I went to or the school district I went to was about 25% black students or kids of color who were mostly black and about 75% white. And that wasn't reflected in how tracking worked, right? That I was still the only black kid in like almost every class I took, right. even though there were other black students at the school. And so those experiences really shaped who I was and, and my feelings about school. I was pretty angry by the time I left high school. I just felt like the level of injustice that was happening around race in the school I went to among quote-unquote well-intentioned white teachers was just unacceptable. And so in some ways going into a school was trying to figure out like what are the racial dynamics here between students and students and students and teachers and teachers and administrators and is there hope to fix this in ways that are better for the next generation than they were for me? Do you have a sense of what it was that like where that anger came from or what allowed you to sort of see the injustice? Because that that injustice has been going on for a long time. A lot of people come through that either internalizing it or, or without seeing it or kind of being willfully blind to it. Yeah. I mean, I think there's probably a number of reasons. I mean, I do not think being black in America necessarily makes you get race, but I think it provides you the opportunity to see it in a way that for white people is harder because it's Mm -hmm. shaping your own life in a, in potentially a negative way. So there's that. I mean, I was a black kid in a white school. I think my mother and the family I grew up in, so my mom's a teacher and was very much about what you were learning in schools is insufficient. Mm. And so there was a lot of additional teaching in our home about black history, about African history, about just kind of empowerment and pride sort of things that I knew I wasn't getting at school, but that I was getting somewhere. And so my definition and my sense of who I was and who people like me were was not limited to the curriculum being given to me in schools. Mm. My mom was also like a low-key kind of like super activisty parent. So she's not like protesting in the streets, but she was 
very good for writing angry letters to teachers yeah. and put them in an envelope and saying like, give this to your teacher. And let's be like, oh, mom, don't make me. <laughs> Do I have to? You know, and it was like, that assignment you did was racist. <laughs> so like, <laughs> it's like, uh, my yeah. mom wanted me to give you this and said, if you have questions to call her, okay, bye. <laughs> Please don't talk to me about it. <laughs> so there was that, the family I was in. I am one of six kids of my parents, but four kids that grew up in a house together who are my mothers and fathers together. And we're all very close in age. They have four kids in three years. And so I'm the oldest of that group. And my brother's 14 months younger than me. And so we were just one year apart in school. Mm. And so he was a black boy. I was a black girl. And it was just very clear. Our experiences were totally different. And so I also noticed how gender, at least at the time that I was in school, really also mattered. And so there were all these negative experiences my brother was having about perceptions of basically white adults about who he was that were different than the experiences I was having. And so like that's in your own house. I don't know how you avoid that. I don't know. I mean, I was also just an observant kid. I remember being in elementary school and just noticing like who was allowed to have a crush on whom. And I remember like liking mm. this kind of having this crush on this white kid in like first or second grade. And and it was like, no, he's only allowed to be, have a crush on, on, on other white girls. Right. I mean, that's like the stuff that like, I don't even know if teachers necessarily knew that was going on, but that was going on among students. Right. And I remember being in middle school and white girls trying to touch my hair or ask, I mean, just all the stuff that happens in a racist system happen in integrated schools and especially happen if no adults are engaging students in dialogue or conversation about anti racism and anti-black racism and all those things, then students are just recreating in their own environments the same kinds of interactions and systems that exist in the rest of our society. Right. So Jefferson se seems like a, a pretty good example of that. You, you found a school that matched a lot of your own personal experiences. And yeah. You know, what's interesting is that since the book has come out, Almost everyone I talk to who has read it, unless they've gone to completely, you know, 99% black schools or kind of 99% white schools are like, oh my goodness, this is the exact same thing that's happening in my school. Yep. Because the dynamics I talk about about that school, a school district that had, you know, a significant population of black students, it was still majority white. There wasn't as much class difference between the black and white students as you might kind of expect through kind of stereotypes. All the dynamics there are happening everywhere. And so it's really interesting how much people who are, have been all over the country in totally different states and totally different regions and totally different kinds of communities have picked up that book and said, I feel like you wrote this about my school. I felt, I felt like you wrote it about my high school. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right? definitely. Because, which in some ways is like, I mean, that's an honor as an author, but it's also just revealing about the nature of the, the struggle we're dealing with, which is that it is not unique. It is not new. It is not special. It is everywhere. And so... It's kind of sad that we're not able to do this a little bit better because it actually doesn't require a lot of specialized, this particular thing has only happened in this particular place. There's a lot of universal issues that we've been unable to really address that would help schools and kids really and students everywhere. And so that's the part of it that's like the the both end of it being kind of nice that people connect with it and also just kind of sad that we're Depressing. not better at this thing that... It's so obvious. You know, sometimes things happen. When I work with teachers, still this happens because I work with teachers a lot. And they'll say, no, but Shayla, you don't understand. At our school, like, these are the things going yeah. on. They say it like they really think their place is, is, is like, it, yeah. unique. I mean, that is <laughs> like the, the, the amount of conversations at integrated schools that we have with parents who are like, yeah, yeah, no, like in my district, yeah. you'll never believe what's going on. And I'm like, let me connect you to like five other parents from five different cities across it's the, the country who have the everywhere. exact same story. It's the yeah. exact same thing. Yeah. And it's like, mm -hmm, I'm one like 
decade two of this exact story. But go ahead, ma'am. What are they calling right. the students? Right. Yes. Uh huh. What do yep. they call How the Muslim it? students? Okay. Oh yeah. Right. Interesting. <laughs> right. Really. Right. <laughs> yeah. 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 Right. I mean, you see, like the the like the local levers look slightly different, but the underlying thing is the same everywhere. And, well, it's and our it is. national and maybe global, dare I say, incapacity to contend with in any real way racial injustice mm. and our our actual racial histories and histories of racism. And I, w- and I would just say any injustice because we also don't attend, I mean, class injustice. I mean, we, we yeah. can't, we don't have Gender. any ability to contend with any levels of, of oppression and injustice around multiple identities. And it's just sad. I mean, what, what those kids, our schools really reveals is that all these dynamics are going on with students and adults were doing nothing. I mean, adults yeah. were either completely oblivious or willfully oblivious or complicit, complicit. Yeah. Or like, oh, whatever, that's just like general bullying. It's like, well, it's bullying around race, so that's racism. Or it's bullying around class, so that's classism. That's not just like this general whoa, thing. Whoa, that we're whoa, it's not, well, it's not racism. Yeah, exactly. You just was like telling black jokes. It's exactly. Not, yeah. They weren't racist black jokes. <laughs> and so right. what we're seeing is that, you know, uh, the book talks about this, that there are all these like race jokes happening between students and, and kind of more overt and covert racism. And no adults were giving them any real guidance about how to navigate those conversations, those experiences, anything. Right. And so they're kind of left to their own devices, young people. And guess what? Those young people grow up and become adults, just like you and me. And now we're the adults deciding whether or not we're going to make a pandemic pod for our kids. Exactly. When nothing about our education system prepared us to think critically about social justice. Justice. And nothing about our lives did either for the most part, right? Because we live really segregated lives. Our parents were prepared. They don't have the skill set to do it in their parenting. And so you just have these generations of just adults without any kind of critical consciousness or capacity for really engaging with issues of justice in any real way. And then maybe you have some folks like a lot of the people that are in your community around trying to do this work. My guess is the overwhelming majority of those people who are mostly white, mostly you know middle and upper middle class or even wealthy came to this as adults right. on their own, like trying to figure it out way late in the game. Right. Like now I'm 30, maybe I'll read a book about, right? Yeah. You know? And so we're like, playing catch up with with content um, and knowledge and experiences and relationships we should have gotten when we were four. Yeah, that I mean, that to me is the is the tragedy of a school like Jefferson is like, it's one thing, like think about the all white suburban enclave school where there are no kids of color. It's going to be very challenging for those kids to get any of this content. Yep. Maybe you can sort of give it to them in their heads for sure, but they're not going to get it in their heart at all. But a school like Jefferson, a school like my high school that I went to, like the the potential is there because you have kids in the same space, because you have the ability to interrupt these, you know, cycles of ignoring race and pretending it doesn't exist while while kids go on and and actually, you know, create their own kind of racial paradigms in their minds. But we're not doing it. No, nope, we're not. So one of the things I found fascinating about Jefferson is it's maybe 35% black students, but in many ways, the class differences are not what you would expect. Class-wise, there were kind of middle-class black kids, middle-class white kids, poor black kids, poor white kids. And so it was a unique situation in that it wasn't a school district where like all the black kids were poor and all the white kids were not, which is sometimes the case in integrated schools. But I would guess probably like much less often than we think Right. Yeah. Like in our mind, all school yes. districts are like that. And in actuality, probably probably not not nearly as many as we think are are actually like that. Yeah. So in some ways, I don't think this is totally true, but in some ways this was a place where you could kind of a little bit take class off the table. Like what happens when black kids and white kids and also there were some other kind of groups of kids too, racial groups of kids, come together and 
there isn't this huge money thing that you can blame. You can't say, but the reason those kids aren't doing as well is because those kids are poor. Or the reason these kids are doing better is because these kids have money. That that was not a, a really a dynamic there. And so then you're able to look a little bit more closely about like just what is what is the role that race plays in this? When class, the American default, right? right? Our default is like, oh, I don't think it's race. I think it's class, right? right? You're all right. It's poverty. Yeah. It's just about As, the trauma of poverty. Exactly. It's not about the race, yeah. First of all, those, those two things can be disentangled, one. And the funny thing I say is that as quickly as a lot of adults in the book were to want to talk about class instead of race, even in a school where there weren't really these class divisions they kind of made up in their own heads, they also weren't really wanting to talk about class and didn't have any capacity to do that either. Mm. Like it became this fall, but then when you push them on, okay, so how do you think class matters? It's like, oh, well, I couldn't, I couldn't dare say what class background a kid is from. Like, how would I know that? It's right. like, well, you're the one that said it was class. <laughs> what are you basing that on? And so class becomes this like way that we avoid talking about race. And we still avoid talking about class because we're not actually having conversations about class either. Well, because there's like a, there's like a social pressure to not be racist. There's not really the same social pressure to not be classist. For sure. We're like uncomfortable admitting the ways we think about race as indicative of something innate in a person. Yep. But we are much more comfortable saying that class is about, you know, laziness or about, you know, kind of your own, you, you have made yourself poor. I think that's totally true. And I would say we also, even in that, have no actual class analysis. Like we actually don't have a class consciousness in this country. So we have these like class narratives, I would say, like work your, if you work hard, you can be anything you want to be, mm. you know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Right. I, I, I deserve these three cars because I'm hardworking, right? Which is like a lie. Like the hardest working people I know are the poorest people I know. The For only sure. people working all night and then trying to raise their kids, then go to their second job are poor people. Middle class and wealthy people are not doing that. To suggest that to suggest that I am somehow more deserving of the 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 economic privilege I have because I work harder sitting here doing my podcast on my laptop at my <laughs> home office is like so just ludicrous and and it's just a lie, right? So I mean, even so we have these narratives that are just based in falseness and we have almost nothing beyond those narratives about class either. Like if somebody actually said, okay, great. So then we do have these students in our school who are, are impacted by class in this way. Like, what do you think we should do about that as a society? We have nothing to say about that. Right. So it's this weird dynamic where I think you're right. And I would just add, we do all kinds of super classist things in ways as well, because we don't, we also haven't ever really thought about, been taught about, engaged in any way with class as a reality. We, we don't, it's not polite conversation. Right. Maybe we don't think about classism, but we definitely think about like, you're not going to dinner parties talking to people. I mean, I don't know if you go to dinner parties. No, talking to people about. Nobody goes to dinner parties anymore. I don't, I mean, <laughs> I don't remember what I don't that is. I don't call them dinner parties. I don't even know where I got that term. But, <laughs> you know, no one is going out with friends, going to gatherings and saying, you know, you know, we're really upper middle class. Like, can you believe we all have houses with yards and like access to these right. driveways? I mean, those are not conversations happening either. And so, ah. Uh, we really just have a dearth of all the important conversations, I would say. But yeah, and so that's one thing that happened at Jefferson is that class was thrown around a lot. And when you push any teacher at all about, tell me more about what you think about this class thing, it was like deer in headlights. Because it's right. like, oh, you're asking a follow-up. I don't have any follow-up questions. That, that was my, that was my but, escape. Yeah, that was just my escape from having to talk about whether or not I'm racist, right? Right. Yeah. So maybe some of this experience at Jefferson that yep. uh, helped you realize the need for a book like Race Dialogues. Yeah, so Race Dialogues is a book that is really specifically targeted toward 
mostly people who have really thought about this stuff, who have done a lot of their own work, and who want to then help students, middle, high school, and college and university students engage in dialogues around race. And so it really is kind of a facilitator's handbook. It's not really like, if you've never thought about racial justice, you're not going to read race dialogues. This is not the place to start. (laughs) No, I mean, there's some stuff in it that might be useful, but I'm not saying it's not useful, but it really is supposed to be a handbook for people who are trying to facilitate this work, specifically with students. Your editor is not going to be pleased at how how you're selling your book here. Uh Uh-oh, maybe I should say something (laughs) different. Well, it's the truth. This book is not for you. It is for you. And it doesn't mean because you read our book, you can go facilitate a race dialogue well, right? Right. If you haven't, and we say that in there, if you haven't done a lot of your own like excavating work about where you stand on race and what you know about race, then there's some activities in there you can do, but that is different than having the kind of level of competence, knowledge, and skill to really be able to facilitate this. But we knew we we wanted to write it, Donna Kaplowitz and uh, Sherry Saika and I, because there were all these teachers, educators at the university and K through 12 level who were conscious, were thinking, and wanted to engage their young people in conversations about race, wanted to do the thing that wasn't happening at Jefferson, which is like actually give these young folks some space and some room in the regular school day, in their curriculum, in their course selections to talk about and understand race more deeply. And they just didn't know what to do. No like tools it to do it with. Yeah. They were like, well, what do I do? And it's like, where is the actual handbook of what does a lesson look like? How do I facilitate it? How does the room set up? How do I deal with conflict? How do I deal with resistance? There wasn't just a place we could send them. And so we decided to write something specifically to meet that need with the hope that as more teachers get more conscious about racial injustice and the need for kind of activism and and change, that they then do something with that other than, you know, think about it in their own heads, that they actually change their teaching and educating practice and they needed support in being able to do that. Yeah. So that is really how the book came about. We know it has been used in non-school settings as well, that people who just want to engage in these conversations in their businesses and in their communities have really found it valuable. But our impetus was, how do we help people who are passionate facilitate these conversations with other people so we can kind of grow the pool of folks who who care about racial justice? Right. Mm-hmm. And And does it work? Does, do race dialogues work? Yeah. I mean, like, what's the, <laughs> what have you seen seen the outcome of them? Well, you're because, asking like, if I, my whole career has any value. <laughs> um, no, I'm giving you a chance to brag about all of the things that you've accomplished. Because I do think there's a, there's a difference between uh, reading Kendi and being like, okay, cool. I'm now an anti-racist teacher. Yes. Or like, you know, I have decolonized my curriculum and my work here is done. Like, you know, what what is the... Yeah, I mean, and this actually connects to the other work I do. So I work with Justice Leaders Collaborative and we do a lot of professional development and training for teachers and other folks. We kind of do what's in race dialogues, right? Or versions of it. Justice Leaders Collaborative is not only race specific, it's an intersectional approach. And so we deal with race, class, gender, sexual orientation, attractionality, ability. But yeah, our goal is to help people come to their own consciousness and then do something about it. Transform your practice, transform your classrooms, transform your relationships. And so the question is, does that work? And I would say it depends. I think it works a lot. I think we have seen people we work with, teachers we work with especially, and just for for our purposes, it's not only teachers, but that's a place where it's very easy to see change, who have transformed what they do in the classroom, who have taken 
everything they were doing five years ago have thrown it out and have like redone everything. We have seen schools we work with rewrite their discipline codes and their code of conduct handbooks. We have seen what's happening now nationally, people get rid of their police relationships. Mm -hmm. We have seen people transform how they do holidays and celebrations. Um, There's this tool we use called the EJAT, the Education Justice Assessment and Transformation Tool, which I developed, which is really about what should schools look like when they are doing just practice. And a lot of teachers have taken that up and are and are doing things totally differently. And I would say a lot of teachers also in almost all white districts, right, mm. where it would be very easy to say this isn't our problem, but where we know it's the number one side of the problem because those white privileged kids in all white school districts are going to grow up to be the police officers, the lawyers, the teachers, right. the, the politicians. And if they are not justice-minded when it comes to race, our system doesn't get fixed, right? Mm. And I would say my experience is you can't mandate that people care about social justice. Right. So I don't think it works to say every single person in this district, read this book, go to this training, and now you're going to transform your practice. You are not. Because, I mean, I think you said this earlier, there has to be some will in your heart. You don't have to know anything, but you have to want to know something, right? And so we say we very much try to avoid doing mandatory work. We say we are doing work for for passionate people. And that means you can be anywhere on the continuum of kind of knowledge and relationships and skill and expertise. But you have to want to be in the room. Right. Because if you don't want to be in the room, there's nothing I'm going to say to you to shift you, especially as a Black person, right? You're not going to like not value diversity, not value inclusion, not value equity, not value justice, and go to a four-hour PD with like Shayla and suddenly get convinced. (laughs) So I mean, I think that's the answer to your question is like, yes, for people for whom there is passion there, interest there, and a willingness to kind of shake their own worldview, there is a lot of power in race dialogues and in um, the Justice Leaders Collaborative work. And for people for whom that is not there, Candy's not going to get it there either. But it is, but it is, I mean, I guess the, the, the other side of that is that, is that if you have passion in your heart, there are tools out there that are helpful. Cause I feel like the, the other side of that is people are like, this is like 600 years of systemic racism. I, how, what, what can I do to possibly change that? You know, it, it's baked into the system. Like me reading a book is not going to change that. But, but you're saying like, if you, if you have passion in your heart and you do the work, that the work is not, impossible and then you actually can have like really meaningful transformation 100 percent. and i would just say for me meaning personal transformation is just a prerequisite like a lot of what we do is just giving people the tools so that when they come to the table they are able to enact justice Hmm. but if you are reading a lot of books and listen to this podcast and in your heart doing all the like i really care about this stuff and nothing about your life nothing about the way you do your job nothing about the way you raise your children where you choose to send them to school, all those things changes. I honestly don't care. Like mm. I kind of don't care what's in your heart. I mean, I, you know, right. it doesn't help me in any way. And so yeah. it has to be, it has to connect to practice. It has to connect to action. And so if you are a person who cares about that, figuring out where that is in your own sphere of influence is going to be important. And you're not going to fix everything. You know, John Lewis just died and mm. he was fighting for this stuff at 15, 16, 17, 18, 19 and died without seeing it come to fruition. And yet the fight continued, yet we continue, right? And so we're not gonna see it in our lifetimes. One of my colleagues, Autumn Campbell says, we're planting seeds for trees whose shade we will never sit in. Mm. And that's the reality when you're doing racial justice work and we do it anyway. And so I think part of what we have to do is figure out where in our own sphere of influence do we have the power to take action? For me, I work with a lot of teachers. I have access to do trainings with people. I can write some things. And so that's my sphere of influence. How do I make schools 
more socially just, how do I write things that inspire people to take action? But for you, it might be something else, right? And that might start with your own kids and your own family and how you're raising them and where you're sending them to school. And we all have to do the part we can do in the place that we um, have the power and influence to do it. Yeah. I, yeah, I'm, I'm so grateful to you for taking the time for sharing Thank you for, for asking me for your writing, for the work that you're doing and engaging in. And I know you're not, uh, you're not an optimist and I know it's hard to find optimism, but I do, I do draw some hope from your words and, and from the work that you're doing. I'm not an optimist, but I am an activist. And so, yeah, which requires some hope without hope. There's no reason to be an activist. Yeah. You do it anyway. Yeah. Justice is a religion, right? I mean, yeah. It is the idea that that is what we are here to do. And so I think you have to have that low, low conviction to really sustain the work. Otherwise, it's just way too easy to 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 go with the status quo. Huge thanks to Dr. Griffin for making the time to talk. You know, I love that her kid interrupted because that's life for all of us these days, right? You know, through all the tragedy of this moment, maybe one upside will be that professional, quote unquote, will no longer have to mean pretending we don't have other things in our lives or that we have everything together all the time. I took so much from our conversation. And while I share her pessimism in many ways, I did leave with a little bit of hope in the form of a couple of things. Number one, a deeper commitment to our public institutions. In this moment of crisis, how do we, particularly those of us with privilege, make sure that those institutions exist on the other side of this? Number two, a stronger sense of obligation to those who have been dealing with the struggle of finding work and childcare for so long. What do we owe them now that the struggle feels more real? And how can we fight for a more just system for them and for us? And number three, an ever more present calling to use my sphere of influence, whatever it may be, to push for justice, to keep planting seeds for trees whose shade our kids or maybe our kids' kids can one day sit under. To discuss further or just to support this all-volunteer effort, please join our Patreon, patreon.com slash integrated schools. Let us know what you think about the episode or anything else by emailing hello at integratedschools.org. And check us out on social media at Integrated Schools. We recently redid the resources page on our website. So if you're looking to further your reading or listening, check that out. We also have links to the recording of our first ever webinar Nearly a thousand people have watched already. If you haven't checked it out, please do let us know what you think. There's a feedback form in the comments or just send us an email. And as always, I'm grateful to be in this with you as I try to know better and do better. See you next time. Hold up. 